Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Doing good? Beautiful day outside. We can't complain much other than that demon that is the yellow pollen is here. Um, and so if I sound like my face is full of stuff, it's because it is. I was going to get more expressive there, but I'll stay with stuff. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, welcome to Mars Hill. My name's Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And you've joined us as we are working through the book of Exodus. Um, here at Mars Hill, we go through one entire book, verse by verse at a time, um, and work through it. And we've been in the book of Exodus for about a year and a half now. And we've seen some absolutely amazing things happen. Um, we've seen a people that were oppressed, that were trapped in slavery by the hand of the Egyptians, brought out by the grace and the mercy of a loving God, not because of anything they did, not because of anything they earned, but just because of who God is. He brought them out, and he brought them out using these terrible and amazing plagues, that he showed his power to Israel, that he showed his power to the Egyptians, and he showed his power to Pharaoh, revealing that he was and is the one true God. And then we get to the seventh plague, and those that were obedient and applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their home was passed over by death. And this is where Pharaoh got to the place that he said, let him go. But then the anger in the heart of Pharaoh, his pride captured him, and he chased down the Egyptians, I mean, the Egyptians chased down the Israelites, and the Israelites are trapped between the Red Sea and this army, and God opens up the sea for them. They pass through on dry ground and then the water swallows up the Egyptian army. And this is where most good movies would end, right? We got to this place of victory. We got to this place of freedom. But then what we begin to see is honestly the most miraculous part of the whole story. Where the God that brought them freedom draws near and provides for them as they move through the wilderness. That he takes them to this place of Sinai and he makes a covenant there with them. That he lays out these criteria of what their relationship's going to look like. Because up to this point they had seen the power of God but they hadn't really seen his true character. And so he lays this out to them in this covenant that we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words. And then we move into our portion of scripture that we're in today, which is the book of the covenant. And if the Ten Commandments are, are these criteria of this relationship, the book of the covenant is the way that these are to be lived out. They're expanding on these. They're the way that Israel is going to live set apart from the rest of the world. What's going to make them look different? What does this relationship look like? So if you have your copy of scripture, you can turn to Exodus chapter 23 with us. We are going to be in verses 20 through 33. But before we start, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask him to bless this time today. God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that this morning it speak to our heart, that it transform us. Lord, that by your spirit, our ears and our eyes are open to the truths that you have for us. God, I pray that your words are the words that are expressed and heard because your words are the only words that can bring a transformed heart. So Lord, I pray that you grow us as we study together in this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting with verse 20 of chapter 23, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. 
for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So as we start working through this passage, a lot of us may even get stuck on like the fifth word. We may not even make it that far. Get stuck on the word angel. As you go through and you start looking at commentaries on this particular chapter in this particular passage, we see so many views of who this is, of what this is. And so I do think that it's fair that we ask the text, that we ask Scripture a couple of questions about this. And I think that the first question that we do need to ask is, what is a biblical angel? And the reason that we need to ask this question is because when we say the word angel, so many different things come to our mind, doesn't it? I mean, some of us start thinking wonderful life. Finish the quote with me. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets it. There you go. Yeah, that's not biblical. Um, so uh, understand that, right? I mean, we, we have all of these ideas of what an angel is. Our society even teaches us that we're going to die. And our spirit's going to raise, we're going to go up to heaven, and we're going to earn our wings. No, that's not what an angel is. We have to understand that an angel is a created being. We are people, they are angels. And as we go through scripture, we see a lot of different descriptions of angels. Um, we get to those in like Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they start getting really strange, don't they? We start hearing about these angels that have like multiple sets of wings. We get into Ezekiel, which everything in the book of Ezekiel is kind of strange. But it starts describing like this circular set of eyes, like these almost like rings of angels. It's really strange. But then we also get these angels that can actually be mistaken for humans. Obviously, the most famous would be there at the tomb, right? The, the young man dressed in white. Nobody freaked out, so I'm pretty sure that it wasn't one of the weird, like, ringy angels, because I would freak out and run. But we see also that some of these angels can be mistaken for humans like that. We see this instance in Joshua, chapter 5, verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went with him and said, are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, no. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So we have this whole wide array of angelic supernatural beings. I wasn't there and so I have no idea what this angel looked like, but I'm fairly certain it didn't look like this guy. Right? Um, we all like have that precious moments figurine, and they're all like pleasant and happy. No, whenever we start seeing angels in scripture, there's weight to that situation. Right? It's talking about a warrior. It's talking about a messenger. It's talking about someone who has come to guard. It's, it's, it's a very, very weighty situation. And so we need to understand when we see this on the scene, it should begin to draw us in. It should begin to make us see and look and see what's going on in this situation. Because whatever it is, is going to be weighty. Now there is another way that the word angel can be used. It can simply be used as messenger. 
And if we start talking about messenger, um, this could be a human being, someone that's a messenger for the Lord. And this is where a lot of people start talking about this angel differently, about this um, angel of the Lord that's here. And some people would say that maybe it's Moses, right? He's the messenger of the Lord. There's a problem there. Moses didn't enter into the promised land. And so I don't think that's it. Some people may be talking about Joshua. And when we look at his Hebrew name, Yahshua, he shares his Hebrew name with Jesus. His name is in him. So maybe, I don't know. But I don't think that that's what we're talking about here. And the reason why is because as we read through this, Scripture begins to expand on the characteristics of this angel. And we need to pay very, very close attention to those. So verse 20 said, Behold, I send an angel to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So to guard, to guard and to bring. Verse 21 says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now when we look at this, it appears that because this pardon transgression part is brought in, it appears that whoever this angel is would have that ability Right? Because you wouldn't mention it if that ability were not there. And so this becomes very, very problematic for a lot of these interpretations. Could Moses forgive sins? No. Could Joshua? No. Let's talk about the angel Gabriel. No. And so who would have the ability to forgive sins? Who is this angel, this messenger, that is a warrior that holds the power of forgiveness? This could very well be pre-incarnate Christ. This could very well be who we are talking about. And this totally fits the description of Christ. Because look at the characteristics in the book of Exodus as compared to the New Testament. Our passage says that when we look at this, that this angel is a guide. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our passage says that the voice of this angel holds authority. If we go to the New Testament, Luke 9, 36, and a voice came out of the clouds saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to his voice. Um, our passage says that God's name is in him, and apparently the ability to forgive sins is there. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so God's radiance is in him, that he's the imprint of his nature. Our passage says that this angel will bring them into the promised land. John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's one who prepares a place for God's people and takes them to himself. And so we don't know for sure exactly who this angel is. But we know for certain that at very least it's pointing forward to Christ. 
And that's something that we need to hang on to, right? We can disagree on exactly what this is, and we can go back in the book of Exodus. We have some um, keys that may help us unlock this because we see the angel of the Lord present. We see all of these things, but no matter who, no matter what, when we begin to look at the list of characteristics, we must understand that it is pointing us forward to Jesus, our Messiah. And so hang on to that because we're going to need to come back to that a little bit later. We also need to make sure that we pay attention to the historic point of this angel being there. I mean, think about it. Why was the angel there for Israel in this time? Why was he there for the Hebrew people? The reason why is because this angel is a very powerful, tangible reminder that God was present with his people. We can't forget that. We can't forget that this is a reminder that they were not alone. And as we've seen this wilderness journey, we've seen God show up and guide in a cloud and in a pillar of fire. And we've seen God provide food for them. We've seen God provide water for them. That God has been with them and they are not alone. That, that they are accompanied by the very God of the universe that's going to take care of them. He is with them. They're not alone. And if we look in verse 21, there's another characteristic of this angel. That it's not only this very presence of God being evident there, but it says, be careful to him and obey his voice. That lets us know that this angel will be speaking to Israel. That this angel will be guiding them. That this angel will be shaping their journey. And this should be amazing to us. We should look at this and say, wow, I can't believe God did that. I can't believe, that's so neat that he would do that for his people. It's so awesome that he would take care of them and accompany them and guide them and speak to them. But this should, just shouldn't amaze us as we look at it as a past thing. It should draw our minds and our heart to the understanding that Israel was never alone, but neither are we. We have to see that. We have to not only be amazed at what God has done, we need to be amazed at what God is doing. Do, do, do you see the weight of that? That those of us that are redeemed, we are not alone. We're very much in the same shape that Israel was. I mean, think about it. At this time, God's people had been freed from the bondage of slavery. There was a promised land in the future, but they were in the in-between, weren't they? They were in the wilderness. They were in this already, not yet. Think about our lives as Christ followers. We have been redeemed. We've been set free from our sin. We are saved, but our promise is in the future, and we're in the in-between. And so this is supposed to draw our attention to the fact that as we walk this wilderness, as we walk this life, as we live this, we are not alone either. So what do we have if we're not alone, what do we have? Well, there's a lot that we have that God has afforded us along this journey. The, the first is look around this room. We have each other. I mean, we're, we're not supposed to live this life alone. We're not supposed to walk this wilderness alone. We're supposed to be there to pray for each other, encourage one another, love one another. There are people in this room right now that when things go bad in my life, 
I call them and ask for prayer. When things go awesome, I call them and they rejoice with me. I am not alone because of some of the people in this room. And you shouldn't be either. You know, that's one of the main reasons that, that here at Mars Hill, we emphasize community so much. We, we talk about being a part of a small group, of whatever that may look like for you. Being a part of a tight-knit group of believers so that you're not walking this life alone. Because you shouldn't be alone. It's very important that we have one another. Jack, all the time, years ago, when Mars Hill was starting, he would always say that the reason that we come together is to perform the one another's. Do me a favor. Tell me how you pray for one another if you're alone. Tell me how you encourage one another if you don't know their needs. Tell me how you support one another if you're not around one another. How do you rejoice with each other when you don't know each other's victories? We have each other. We should not be alone. But there's something else that we have. We have the very word of God. We, we have the Bible, right? Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. We have the very words of God. We say all the time, I wish that God would speak to me like that. He has. Do, do we hold the Bible in the esteem that it should be? Do we hold it as the very words of God? Do we lock it away in our hearts? Do we follow it? Are we transformed by it? We have the very word of God. And there's something else that we have too. It's almost like a game show. That's not all. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. You think about that. You know, we talk about how neat it is that we can read this story and we can see this angel of the Lord external. Like they get to look at it and see it external. And we're like, that's pretty neat. They get to look out and follow and hear the voice. Have you really thought about how amazing it is that the very spirit of God dwells inside of us as believers? Have you thought about that? We should be saying instead, how neat is it that they could see this angel out there? Instead, we could be saying, how incredible is it that now we are dwelled in by the Holy Spirit and we don't have to look externally anymore. That we're being transformed, that we're being renewed, that we're being empowered by the very Spirit of God. The Bible starts talking about the Holy Spirit and gives us all sorts of, of encouragement. Look at John 14, 26. It says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Remember here Jesus is talking to the disciples, right? It's a unique situation that the Holy Spirit's going to bring back all of these things that he said. But that character of the Spirit of God is true for us today. That he is our Helper. John 16, 7 through 8, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying this. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Another characteristic of the Holy, Holy Spirit that brings conviction and direction and guidance to us. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 
These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit of that person, which is in him, right? The spirit of God. But watch what this says. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. So who comprehends the thoughts of God? The spirit of God and who dwells in us, directing us, renewing us, transforming us. It's that very spirit. Think about how amazing that is. And we could keep going. John 16, 13, the Spirit speaks to us. Romans 8, 26 through 27. He helps the weak. I need to hear that most times. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 changes our desires, changes the very fruit that we produce as a person. We have the Holy Spirit. We are not alone. And that's incredible. So we don't just look at this verse and point back and say, this is a really neat thing that God did. But instead we say, wow, I can't, I can't believe this. But here's the question. How many of us walk each day in that understanding? How many of us wake up in the morning and say, God, give me ears to hear and eyes to see and let your spirit guide me today? You know, there's a book written called The Forgotten God. On the Holy Spirit. How, how, how often do we just take that for granted? We need to have ears to hear. Let's move on. Verse 22 says, But obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That language gets interesting. Obey his voice and do what I say. And so there's authority contained in this. It's like the will of God is the will of this angel, which again seems to point us to Christ, right? But no matter what your understanding of this angel is, we must see that obedience to this angel and obedience to God will bring blessing. And what is the blessing? Don't miss this. The blessing is the victory of God. That sounds really weird. Tommy, didn't you mean to say the victory of Israel? No, no, no. This is God's victory. And it's very clear in the passage. As we read through this passage, we see over and over that God says, I will. And we see this if-then statement, right? If you obey, then I will. So in our passage today, what does the Lord say that he'll do? Well, some of these are, we're going to see are attacks against enemies and others of these are blessings for God's people. It, almost in a way, we begin to see this idea again of recreation. Like making things good in a biblical sense. We're going to see that as we work through these. So verse 22 is going to say that he will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Verse 23 says, I blot them out. Verse 25, we start seeing kind of this idea of recreation come in. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. So there's a blessing of resources, and there's a blessing of health. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. It's another picture, uh, picture that points to recreation. Verse 27, back to defeating enemies. I will send my terror before you and I'll throw into confusion all the people against whom you have come. And I'll make all your enemies turn their backs on you. Verse 28, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. 
Listen to this language. Can, can you imagine this? That there is a God fighting against your enemies and a God blessing your life. And, and they're the same thing. Right? They're, they're married together. When I look at verse 28, like I'm a very, very visual thinker. I get pictures often and sometimes they get me in trouble. But when I read this, I started thinking about being outside in like a bee or a hornet or a, a wasp. Those red ones, the evil ones that come after you. Like when one comes after you, what do you do? And it's okay if you look at your spouse at this point. If you have that one that's just going to run, uh, freak out. I, I always think of my little girl. My little girl to this day hates flying insects. Like it's just a thing. Like bugs shouldn't also be able to fly. It's like giving them an unfair advantage. But when she was little, two or three years old, like we'd be out in the backyard and anything flying, like it could be an innocent little house fly, right? But it would come around her head and she'd go, ah, a bee, a bee, a bee. And what would she do? She would turn her back to her enemy and she would flee, right? She would go into the house. Like she was done. She was gone. And she's looking out the window. Daddy, is it still out there? And I'm like, well, it's outside probably. Um, but the thing is, is that when we look at this, we need to understand that this is not just a victory that's brought. Think about the confusion that would be brought. I mean, I, I don't know if this is literal. I don't know if this is figurative. We see this mentioned elsewhere in Scripture that there were actually two kings defeated by, and it talks about the hornets. And so we see that God fulfills this. But think about that. I mean, think about the chaos that would come. Think about the defeat that would come. How do you fight hornets? No, like seriously, I want to know. Um, because if you get a swarm coming at you, draw a sword. See what happens. You get stung. You have a swarm coming at you, draw your weapon. See what happens. You get stung. You can't defeat this enemy. And it's a picture of this total victory of the Lord. But don't miss this next part. Yes, God will get a total victory. He promised to drive out the enemies. He, he promised to deliver the land to Israel. But then it says he will not do it all at once. The Bible actually says little by little. See, when we look at this, we see that Israel may have wanted the land cleared all at once. And, but God didn't. Why? Because God has perfect timing. And that's what we need to see in this. And it can frustrate us. God, why won't you just take this away? God, why won't you fix this? God, why are things spinning out of control in this world, or at least appear to be? God, why? But what we have to understand is nothing's outside of his hand of control. And things happen in his time. Why? Because he knows more and knows better than us. And we have to rest in that. That's so hard. It frustrates us to no end. If I were to ask you how many in this room have ever wished that God's hand would move more quickly in a situation, it would be every hand in the room. I don't even have to ask the question. Because if you're honest, we've all been there. But what this passage begins to show is resting in the Lord. 
And very often, a lot of commentators talked about how they believe that God does this to bring growth. And as I began to, to think about this, it began to make more and more sense to me. That, that this is a pattern of who God is. I mean, you think about it. The Bible says that my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory, right? The Bible tells us in the model of prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But what would happen if, if God allowed his hand of monetary blessing, which isn't the only blessing it is, that's actually the least of the blessings, I think. But God opened up his hand and said, Here, here's all the money that you would ever need the rest of your life, go. And you would say, okay, that's pretty neat. But then what would happen? Your faith would move from having a location of God to provide for you to what he provided for you. Does that make sense? We would start depending more and more on the ability of the resources that we have to take care of us than we would for the Lord to take care of us. Or at least I know I would. And so when we look at this, God's perfect timing is expressed here. He says that it's going to take time. It's going to happen over a year. Why? Well, the Bible tells us that wild beasts would take over. But as we look at this, so many commentators went back and said things like, this was also so that Israel could grow in their faith. They, went into a, they would go into a land that would still be occupied, resting in the fact that the Lord promised a victory. And I think that's big for us today. I think that's something that we need to hold on to. Our passage also tells us that he'll set the boundaries of the land. And so what does that mean for us? It means that this blessing is set by God. That it's by his hand, that it's by his will, it's by his design. He sets it, he'll hold it, he'll protect it. And so the point of all of this is, is that when we look at this passage, it speaks of a total victory of the Lord by his timing. It speaks of blessings of the Lord with the blessings being his blessings. And and I think that as we look at this, we need to understand it as such. You know, it it talks about um, blessing of provision with food, with drink. It talks about blessings of health. It talks about blessings of all of these things. But what we have to understand, and guys, this is so hard for us, is that when we look at the truth of this, it's pointing to a specific thing God's going to do at a specific time with a specific people, but it's a picture of what's going to happen in our lives. You guys understand that one day we will be in a promised land with no sickness, with no disease, with no death, with perfect provision, but we're not home yet. And that's the part we have to hang on to. So often we put all of our stock in this world. We put everything in our current situation, in our current happiness. But that's not where it should be. We have to understand that it's bigger than that. That right now we are in this in-between. We are in this already not yet. I also see in this that there's a really interesting picture painted for us here. That this angel is supposed to be a blessing to those that are obedient. 
but will be a curse to those who aren't. One commentator said it this way. He who is an angel to the saint is a hornet to his foes. He who is an angel to the saint is a hornet to his foes. And so what that means is that in my mind, it points me back to Malachi. I don't know how many of you were with us as we studied through the book of Malachi, but we got to the very end of the book and it starts talking about this great and terrible day of the Lord. And there's these two perspectives going on. It talks about the righteous frolicking in the field like a calf. Like it's this beautiful picture of freedom and hope and joy and release. And then at the same time, at the same time, that day of the Lord will be a day that's terrible for those that aren't believers, that, that aren't redeemed, that they will be trod as ash under the feet. And so we have to understand this perspective. And so what does this do? This begins to draw us to the importance of obedience. Which side of this are you on? Which perspective do you see this from? Is it from one that is a follower or one that is an enemy? Because those are two very, very different points of view. And to get a whole picture of everything that's happening here, if we want to tie it all up in a neat, pretty bow, we have to understand that this whole thing that we've seen so far in Exodus it is centered around these ideas of land, promise, obedience, the worship of Yahweh alone. And that's the lens that we have to look at all of this through. You know, we go back in the book of Exodus and we see what's the purpose of Israel being set free anyway? What was their purpose of being set free anyway? Well, we studied that. We saw that in Exodus 7, 16. It says, and you shall say to him, the Lord to you saying, let my people go that they may, what? Serve me in the wilderness. Exodus 8.1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may what? Serve me. Why were they set free? To serve, right? To worship. To worship Yahweh alone. Exodus 3.18 says, And they'll listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So they may go, they may serve, they may worship, they may sacrifice. This is the reason that they were set free. This is the reason that God moved uh, in Israel, this is the reason that God moved the Israelites out of Egypt. So that they may be set free to worship. And God said that he will do these things. Um, you guys know that um, Passover starts this coming Friday. How many of you have been a part of a Passover Seder um, here at Mars Hill before or a Passover Seder anywhere before? You guys remember the four cups there? Um, the cup of sanctification, the cup of judgment, um, the cup of redemption, and then the cup of praise. All of those come out of Exodus 6. Now, I want you to begin to look at the picture of what's being painted here. Okay, We know that, um, that the Israelites, the Hebrews, are being freed for the purpose of worshiping God. And who is doing all of the work? God is. 
their response is worship. Their response is praise. So when we look at Exodus 6, 6 through 7, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my own people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So when we look at this, the first three cups are things that God did. He brought sanctification. He brought judgment. He brought redemption. That fourth cup, the cup of praise, is the response that Israel was to have for the acts of the Lord, right? It was their response to him that we will worship you as God alone, that you are the one true God, that we will submit our lives to you. They respond in worship. They are to respond in obedience. They are to respond to what God has done. We need to understand that we that are the redeemed are called to share in this. We're called to share in this too. What does that mean? It means that we must understand that we have been set free, right? That, that we have been called out of our bondage. That we have been sanctified. And as a result, we should respond how? In worship and praise and obedience. You know, for several years now... Um, I've lived by a very, very basic, easy, simple definition of worship, um, which is easy to remember but difficult to enact. Uh, my, my personal definition of worship is responding to all of who God is with all of who you are. Um, I heard that back when I was in college, and it stuck with me. Um, it's easy to hang on to. It's easy to understand, but it shows you the gravity of what we're called to do. What does that mean? It means that if I understand who God is and what he has done in my life, that my life should respond in that way. So if I believe that God is my deliverer, that he's my hope, that he's freed me from death, then guess what? My life should look like I believe that. My life should respond in that. If we believe that God is our provider, then our grip on the things of the world are going to be, is going to be loosened, right? If we believe that he is good, then his requests are going to be yes. His calls to us are going to be yes. And, and that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about obedience and response, praise and response, worship and response to who God really is. Our heart as believers should be the heart behind Psalm 119, 33 and 34. It says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Jesus even spoke to the importance of obedience in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience was supposed to be a way of life for Israel. And it should be a way of life for us too. It's not that we're going to be perfect, because we're not. But when we look at the trajectory of our life, where's the trajectory of our life taking us? You know, you can, you can tell 
what someone's God or who someone's God genuinely is by looking at the trajectory of their life. You know, Jack always said that you can tell what a person finds important by looking at two things. Look at their calendar and look at their checkbook. And you can see who they worship. You can see who their God is. Does our life look like we believe these things? Does our life respond to who God is? Does it respond fully to who God is? And the beautiful thing about this is, is that when we look in the book of Exodus, there's this promise. There's this promise that if Israel would obey, then they would enter this land of no sorrows, no sickness, no pain, never-ending bountiful, uh, bountiful provision. But our passage should remind us that that is available for us too. As we've looked through Exodus, we've seen that God set Israel apart to be a peculiar people, a different people. Why? To point to God. That didn't go away in the New Testament. We should be a peculiar people. We shouldn't exactly fit in. Um, look at Matthew 5.16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, our life should simply look different. Why? Not for our glory, but to point to God. To point the world to God. To point to the fact that he is different. That he's not like the gods of this world. He's not deaf. He's not blind. He's not uh, ignorant to our needs. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He's not unable. He's not inept. That he is the one true God. There are lots of similarities between Exodus and where we are today. There's a lot of things that we need to take from it. But what we have to understand is that there's one major difference. When we look in the Old Testament, we see this system of cursing and blessings throughout the whole thing. We need to understand that in Christ... We put our hope in the one that already obeyed perfectly. So we receive his blessings. We receive what is owed him. See, the call to Israel was to obey and receive God's blessings. But our call today is to receive the one who did obey perfectly and receive God's blessings. So what do we take home from this? Like, what do we take home from this story about uh, a people who have been called out and, and a God who sends his angel to guide them and be with them and that this angel would lead them into a land of blessing and, and bountifulness and be an enemy to their enemies? What do we take home today? I think the first thing that we need to remember as we leave is that Israel was not alone in their wilderness and neither are we. Hang on to that. Trust in that. We have each other. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. Take that with us as we go. The second thing is that the true act of worship is obedience. I think we need to hang on to that. That, that Israel was called to obedience and so are we. You know, Jesus reminded us that if we love him, we'll obey his commands. But our obedience is different. 
We have Christ. We submit to him. We follow him. And that's the source of our blessings. Our blessings are in Christ. And that brings us to the third thing that I think we hang on to is that we're called to be a peculiar people. Just as Israel was called to be different for the sake of pointing to Yahweh, we are called to be different to point to Christ. In our passage, Israel was called not to bow down to foreign gods. Our society is going to pressure us and pressure us and pressure us to bow down to the ideals of the world around us. And we can't. There can't be any other voice in our life that is louder than the voice of Christ. And that brings us to the fourth thing. Any way other than obedience leads to death. We have to understand that just as there is blessing in Christ, there is blessing in submitting our life to Christ. There is a blessed life to come, but there's blessing in this life. Just as that, we have to understand that on the other side of that coin is that disobedience leads to death. There's not another way. There's only one way that any other voice, that any other authority can't matter. And then the fifth one, we must remember that all of this points to Jesus. That God sent Jesus to be our true and our better protector. I love what Neil wrote in his notes. He said that to be an advocate bearing the very character and nature of God, we must hear his voice, we must heed his call, and we must submit to his authority. All of this points to him. And so the question is, have you trusted him? Have you submitted to him? Are you following his voice? See, a life of submission to the call of Christ leads to abundance. It leads to promise. It leads to his blessing. It assures us that we will enter into this promised land, this promised place of blessing. Right now, though, we're in the wilderness. Are you walking alone? So you don't have to. You don't have to be alone. Have you bent your knee? Have you bent your head? Have you submitted to him? Because if so, he will hold true to his promise and he will bring you to the place that he has prepared for you. Exodus 23, 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemy and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall surely overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I'll fulfill the number of your days. I'll send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. 
And I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Least the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased in possession of the land. And I'll set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely snare you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you so much um, for your goodness and your mercy that follows us, that guides us, that leads us all the days of our lives. Lord, I pray that we rest in the fact that we are not alone. That your spirit is with us, it leads us, it guides us. And I'm thankful that we are guided to a place of promise that in Christ all things will be made new. That we don't live for this world, but instead we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray that that make us a peculiar people for you. Help our hearts and our lives look different. Help us to live pointing to you, the one true God. Lord, I pray that you move in our hearts. Those of us who need encouragement, Lord, I pray that you encourage us. Those of us that need community, I pray that you help us find community. Lord, I thank you so much for all of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.